In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, St. Augustine begins his book, Confessions, with the sentence of prayer. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Well, that's an important start to discussing our gospel this morning. The gospel lesson is about money. But the secret is it's really not about money. Right, our gospel lesson this morning is really about the heart. Right, because our hearts will seek rest. They'll seek contentment. They'll seek joy in all kinds of things in this world. But our hearts will not truly be content. They will not truly be at rest until they rest in the Lord who created them. The rich man in our gospel is a picture of a man whose heart is resting in something that is not the Lord. He is someone from the outside who has it all right. He's the image of the person who sits in a church pew every week, knows all the right answers, has his life together, but is still missing something. Is still not quite at rest. He does not want to receive the gift of rest that Jesus has for him. He does not want to receive Jesus himself. And so we begin at verse 17, which shows us the mindset of this rich man. He approaches Jesus, and he first calls him good teacher. And Jesus pushes back at the man's use of good. But the man is approaching Jesus as a teacher who can lay down rules for him. He wants Jesus to give him the right aphorism. He wants Jesus just to give him that easy secret. He imagines that Jesus is a guru who can show him just how to be more successful, how to be more religious. Now contrast this approach with those in the gospel who have come to Jesus for healing. Right? They come to Jesus and they crowd around him. They won't be stopped and they beg Jesus for life. They come to Jesus not for a secret strategy on how to have it all. They come to Jesus because they know he has life. They know that Jesus is more than a good teacher. They know that he is the Christ, that he's the Savior. And so these people who were crowding around Jesus, clinging to him, they weren't just looking for rules. They weren't looking for a teacher. They weren't looking for an easy answer. They were looking for life. And so the man then asked Jesus, who he sees as a teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So as Lutherans, red flags ought to be waving at us. Sirens ought to be going off loudly. Right? What must I do to receive eternal life? We, of course, do nothing to receive eternal life. It's a gift. It's given to us through our trust, through our faith. You know, for example, the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. Right? The son asks his father for an early share of his inheritance and then goes and squanders all that money away in some faraway land. But then he returns to his father's house, and what does he do? He begs for mercy, and that's it. He seeks the love of his father, and the father is overjoyed to receive him. The father doesn't tell him to get to work. He doesn't tell him to repay him. He receives his son freely in his own mercy. And in Mark 10, just a few verses before this, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. How do little children receive their parents' love? Freely. 
Your children don't do anything to receive your love. They don't earn your affection. You generously and freely love your children because of who they are, and they freely receive it. There's nothing for them to do but to be loved by you. Well, in the same way, the kingdom of God that Jesus is offering is a gift. And so the rich man comes to Jesus like he is meeting with an estate planning attorney. Right? He asks Jesus something like, how do I get my affairs in order so that I will get eternal life? And he's missing the point. Eternal life is received only as a gift. It's what God generously gives to those who are seeking him. Jesus knows the rich man is attached to his own success and his own efforts, his own status in this world. So Jesus right away identifies what's really important to this man's heart. Right, the rich man won't receive Jesus as a gift because it's money that his heart is really clinging to. Money is his real God. He can't give it up because that's the most important thing in the world to him. He may pay lip service to wanting eternal life, but he wants money. Luther writes that whatever our hearts cling to, that is our real God. And so we see that the rich man's heart was clinging to his wealth. For many, in that day and time, and even in our day, being rich, being wealthy, being prosperous, is seen as a sign of God's blessing. And so perhaps this man thought the fact that he was rich was evidence that God loved him. That's a common misunderstanding of God. In fact, if you turn on your TV to TBN or some other Christian stations, find a prosperity preacher, and you'll hear something just like that. They'll say God's promise of favor to you is financial. They'll say if you have enough faith, God will give you the money that you want. Right? That money comes to equal God's blessing. But maybe more simply in our gospel, the rich man just enjoys the comfort and security of his money. Maybe he sees the money, sees all that he has accumulated, all that he's worked for. He sees that and he knows he's been successful. He sees his money as the access to power in this world. He knows that as long as he has money, he'll always have respect. Everyone will listen to him. Everyone will pay attention to him and give him voice because he's rich. In any case, for whatever reason, the rich man's holding on to that money. He's doing it because his heart is clinging to it. It has become his God. So verse 22 says, When the rich man heard that Jesus told him to give away his possessions to the poor, he was shocked, and he went away grieving. In front of that man stood the Savior of the world. He was given the opportunity to follow and cling to Christ, to God's Son. He was given out of Jesus' mouth the very promise of treasures in heaven. But he was shocked that Jesus had asked him to give his money to the poor. The man did not see the opportunity Jesus put before him. He only saw that he was losing the most important thing in his life, his money. And so Jesus' words to the man are indeed hard. But to the person who is desperate for life with the Savior, Jesus' words are actually good news. He was given the opportunity to find new life in Christ, to no longer be tied to the things of this world, to no longer be tied to sin, to death, to all of his failures. But the rich man in that moment, he could have changed the trajectory of his eternal existence. He could have redefined himself as a disciple of Jesus. 
Jesus was offering him true life, true freedom. Because if your treasure is in heaven, then you're truly free. If your treasure is in heaven, your job, your employer, your supervisor, they cannot define you. They cannot own you. The things of this world and the people of this world may be able to annoy you, but they're powerless to control you. The only leverage they have over your life is money. But when your treasure is in heaven, that leverage means very little. It means that you're not enslaved to the balance of your bank account. You're not enslaved to your 401ks, your IRAs, your investment funds, and so on. The stock market may go down. Cost of living may go up. Inflation may devalue the dollar. And all these sorts of things that economists warn us about. But these things can truly not rob you of the security you have as a child of God. Even for students, for kids here, it means you're free from being defined by grades, awards, recognition from teachers and coaches. All those things are fine, but you don't have to live for them. They don't have to define you. They're not your final identity. You're free to take criticism from people in this world and to consider it helpful or just ignore it altogether. Right? Because your standard, the one you live for, is Jesus Christ because your treasure is in heaven. The story of St. Lawrence gives an illustration of what it means to be free of the things of this world. So in the year 258, the Roman Emperor Valerian sent a letter to the Roman Senate. He said that all officials in the Christian church should be executed, and all the high-ranking officials in Rome who are also Christian should be stripped of their titles and their property. The Bishop of Rome, knowing that his martyrdom was certain, put a young man, a young deacon named Lawrence, in charge of the treasury of the church. So once the bishop was executed, the emperor's officials demanded that Lawrence gather all the church's treasures and then turn them over to the Roman authorities to be put into service of the Roman pagan temples. So Lawrence, acting quickly, gathered together the mass of the poor people who were receiving alms from the church, and then he paraded them to the official Roman court. And when the emperor's officials demanded to know why these poor people were making such a racket outside the court, Lawrence proclaimed, I have delivered what you ask. These are the treasures of the church. And Lawrence himself was then martyred. But there was no question then for Christians, for Lawrence, where was their true treasure? It wasn't in the decaying things of this world. Rather, it was in following Christ who saved them. Because when your treasure is in heaven, you're free to live out your vocations. You're free to follow Christ courageously, without fear. When your heart learns to rest in Jesus, when it learns not to rest in the things that will pass away in this life, you're free to tell the truth in love. Because you're assured that you possess something much greater than this world could ever take away from you. You're free to take risks. You're free to live the adventure of faith. You're free to take up your cross and follow Jesus. When you walk into this church, when you see that baptismal font right there, take notice of that, because that's your treasure. That's where you were buried and raised anew with Jesus. That's where you were united with God. When you come to Holy Communion, remember that you're receiving your true treasure. Right? It's not a meager paycheck like you get in this world but you're receiving Jesus. 
and you're being formed in his image and confirmed in his love. It's only there that your heart will find rest. If you try to find your identity, your security and money, or anything else in this world, you will continue to be restless. I'd encourage you then to sit quietly sometime, no distractions, and ask, where is my heart restless? Truly ask yourself that question. Because if your heart is restless, what things is it trying to cling to other than Jesus? Right? All of us are guilty of this. All of us have hearts that are idol factories. All of us have hearts that will try to put just about anything before God. Whether that's money, success, family, pleasure, whatever it is. We have hearts that want to make gods out of the things of this world. And so sometimes, just quietly sit, put your phone away, turn off your TV, turn off music, turn off your sounds, and ask, what is it that my heart is reaching for? Because when you sit quietly and you examine that question, you will find that the answer will bring you to God. You'll find that your heart is restless for something good. God is good. You'll find that your heart is aching for love. God is love. You'll find that your heart wants dignity and worth. Well, the God who defines worth and dignity desires to make you his own child. Once you discern what you want, once you know what your heart is clinging for, come to Christ. Come to his table. Receive his grace. Receive your treasure in heaven. Follow him who loves you and who wants to freely give you eternal life. Amen.